The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM in Boston. Shiel Khan is my co-host. He's out in Berkeley. He's a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shiel. Hey, Stephen. So I'm curious, Shiel, how much are you thinking about gas? Because as our listeners know, you work at a venture capital firm that has utilities, mostly electric utilities, as your limited partners. Um, as some of your limited partners. So do you guys work with any gas utilities? Yeah, actually, we have a, a bunch of utilities that, you know, have electric and gas, um, few gas only utilities, but, you know, many of our utilities have gas operations. And in fact, some of the companies that we've invested in also are in and around the gas space from a sort of backup generation perspective or from a um, loss prevention and corrosion avoidance perspective. So we've spent a fair bit of time on gas. And so there's this movement afoot to electrify um, as, as much as we can in homes and businesses. So, so gas is kind of under threat there. And then there's also worries about the cleanliness of gas, which we're going to talk about today. Do you hear the, the gas utilities talking about this stuff much in your conversations with them? I mean, I think a bit, you know, it's a complicated question, the like electrify everything movement. If you're sitting in a utility that has both electricity and gas, obviously one side of your house is uh, going to benefit a lot and the other side is going to hurt. Um, but, you know, I think the reality is that as fast as we may move to try to electrify lots of things, there are other things that are hard to electrify. And even the ones that we will electrify, it's going to take a while. So in the meantime, there's you know, there's a role that gas is going to play. And so there's a necessity to ensure that the gas that we do use for as long as we use it is, you know, clean and affordable and being used effectively where necessary. And that right there is the theme of the show. So this week we're talking about the cleanliness of gas, which is under some level of debate. And the real question is that we're going to be addressing on this show is how much methane are U.S. oil and natural gas drillers emitting. And the data is accumulating. It's been accumulating over the last decade, and it's not really looking good. A recent Wall Street Journal analysis found yearly methane emissions were equivalent to 69 million cars on the road. Some estimates are higher. The UN pegs methane emissions equal to nearly 100 million cars. And the industry disputes some of those higher methane calculations, but it now admits there's a big leakage problem. And that's got people asking, is natural gas on a life cycle basis, just as bad for the climate as coal. We're talking with a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who's been covering this leakage issue very closely, among many other stories related to oil and gas. Her name is Rebecca Elliott. She is with us from Houston. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Hi, Stephen. I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent. So 
It feels like we're at this pretty pivotal moment in the discourse around gas, which is why, Shale, I, I asked you that question at the top of the show. And I want to just outline a few things that I think are important and then get your responses. So I can remember back at the turn of the decade, there was another major change in the perception of natural gas as fracking really started to boom. A few things were happening. One was Josh Fox's 2010 documentary Gasland, which caused a lot of panic and concern about hydraulic fracturing itself. And then the IEA put out this report called The Golden Age of Gas. And it found that a gas-dominant energy mix globally would put the world on a path to 3.5 degrees Celsius warming, which is pretty extreme. And Suddenly, people started calling it a bridge to nowhere, and, th- and that term stuck, and the gas industry got kind of worried about that because um, they were talking about themselves as a bridge fuel. Uh, and then there was this revelation a year or so later that the Sierra Club took tens of millions of dollars from the gas industry, and that caused this major push from environmental groups to decry natural gas, and all these alliances that had been formed with the gas industry started to break down. And then this really important thing happened which was these three researchers, Robert Holworth, uh, Rene Santoro, and Anthony Ingrafia, put out estimates on methane leakage from fracking. And they found that fracking operations were leaking 3.6 to 7.9% of methane. And, and that made gas, according to them, 20% worse than coal in terms of warming over a 20-year period of time. And that's, of course, because methane is way better at trapping heat than CO2. A, a journal science study found in 2015... Um, about half that or so. So not quite as terrible as earlier estimates, but still really bad. Um, But of course, oil and gas production from fracking has continued to rise steadily upward. And today, with improving data collection methods, it's pretty clear we've got a growing methane problem and industry is recognizing it too. Um, And it's entered the public discourse enough so that some major drillers, including BP, are investing in technology to limit leaks and then marketing their gas as sustainably fracked. So like the industry is really thinking about this issue and using it as a marketing tool and also, again, investing in the technology to do something about it. So that's why we brought Rebecca on because she's covering this extensively. And she wrote a story on that um, sustainably fracked gas a few days ago. And so I want to know how bad is this problem? So, Rebecca, I just provide a very brief history of the issue as I understand it. Um, Can you build it out a bit? Like, when did the methane leak problem first become something that industry engaged with in a serious way? So I think that this is an issue that has been growing in prominence in recent years. And a lot of that has really been pushed by investors who are increasingly concerned about the impacts of oil and gas on the environment. And so, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a number of oil majors, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe, where where a lot of this has uh, stemmed from. And so they've, they've joined what's uh, called the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative um, and collectively pledged to cut methane emissions to less than uh, 0.25% of the gas that they're, that they're selling. And so what we're seeing is, you know, as investors uh, become more worried about these issues, uh, a lot of these companies are proactively deciding that they're going to take steps to limit methane emissions totally separate from government regulation, which I think is a really notable kind of step 
So what feels new then is that the, the activist shareholders are putting real pressure on these companies. And um, it's not necessarily environmental groups or environmental groups may have had some role in pressuring these shareholders, but the shareholders themselves are the ones who are making change within these companies. Right, exactly. I think that there's been this rise in in recent years of uh, investment funds that are focused on uh, ESG investing, so environmental, social governance issues. And that has, I think, spurred a lot of change as companies kind of realize that they really have to kind of get those issues under control. Can I ask a question uh, related to Stephen's original framing, which is, I think, Stephen, you said something like, uh, it's becoming clear that this is a growing problem. And I guess I want to know whether we think that's actually true. We sort of, there's growing recognition of the problem, it seems, as we get more and more accurate estimates of how much methane is actually leaking. But do we have data that suggests that methane emissions are increasing, decreasing? I mean, are these measures that the oil and gas majors are taking, are they effective at this point? Like, what's the trajectory? By the Environmental Protection Agency's calculations, uh, the oil and gas industry's uh, methane emissions have actually fallen in recent years, uh, even as oil and gas production has increased. And this is something that my colleagues have, have written about. That being said, flaring, which is the burning of natural gas and uh, generally not as bad for the environment, um, has been increasing quite dramatically. And so I think that we there's a lot going on, right? The U.S. is now uh, the world's uh, top producer of both oil and natural gas. And so, you know, as the country has crossed that threshold, uh, I think there's a lot more attention being paid to this at the same time as companies are, they are indeed taking steps, um, but the the amount of oil and gas that's being produced is, is increasing. The big question is, how accurate is the data that we do have? And when Robert Howarth and his colleagues published that study in 2011, looking at methane leaks from oil and natural gas extraction, the industry really pushed back and they said that those estimates were really high. And since then, we've accumulated more data that the EPA has accumulated more data. We saw that 2015 study in the journal Science. And um, I think that there's an agreement that the problem is very real, but there still seems to be some disagreement about how bad it is um, and how you actually measure this stuff. So can you just... I want to go into how you accumulated data, but first tell me why this is such a murky problem to begin with. A lot of it comes down to how you measure the leakage or the direct releases of natural gas. And you can kind of either measure the level of methane in the air kind of on a spot basis. So go out and measure it on a given day or, or given period of time. Or you can do more extensive studies of individual facilities. And what a lot of researchers have found is that a large portion of these uh, emissions come from large releases from individual facilities. And so if you're not kind of doing your spot measurement on that day, the data could really differ. Um, so that's kind of one 
issue associated with with measuring this. And then another one is methane uh, exists in the atmosphere for a shorter period of time than carbon dioxide. And so if you talk about the impact of methane emissions over, say, a 20-year time horizon uh, as compared to carbon dioxide, it looks much worse than if you talk about it over a 100-year period because the methane in the air has dissipated pretty quickly. It seems like one of the things that we've seen a bunch is companies that are using new data collection methods um, or new sources of geospatial data to, among other things, track methane emissions. And so you've got this variety of new different mechanisms ranging from sensors that you could put near the wells themselves to drones that you can fly with you know, infrared cameras or whatever it's going to be to satellites themselves, which can also be effective. So, you know, is the situation now that like this proliferation of new data collection methods is allowing us to get a much more accurate picture of methane leaks as they are occurring today? Or is it still really a a problem to try to pinpoint? I would say pinpointing the exact level of methane emissions remains really challenging because these efforts, although you know, they've greatly expanded in recent years. They're still on an individual company facility basis and are not being reported up and aggregated across the country or across the world. And so we've seen uh, a number of startups, um, as you were mentioning, that focus on uh, detecting methane via drone or continuously monitoring leaks um, from oil and gas wells or other types of facilities, but that's company-specific data and not something that generally is is aggregated. We are going to pause the interview here to talk about our sponsor, Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right, Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, And then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight and what they're up to, it's uplight.com slash GTM to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com slash GTM. I have a question for you, Shale, because you bring up all these new technologies um, 
to, to, to monitor this stuff and hopefully make gra- gas operations cleaner. Do you consider that a clean tech solution? Because I know that like using solar for enhanced oil recovery is considered a clean tech solution and there's there by some and it's a, it's 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 hotly debated. There are, you know, using energy storage to supplement a, a thermal coal plant, for example, and make it run more efficiently could be considered a clean tech solution, but others may, you know, not, not. So I'm wondering, like, as a VC firm, are you looking at this space and saying, well, if we can clean these operations up, then yeah, we consider that clean tech. It's a good question. I mean, I'll speak for myself and not for EIP, um, because these are sort of personal views. I mean, the first part of that, I think, is semantic, right? Like, what do you define as clean tech? Um, an example would be sort of, let's just say um, that you can use better data and analytics to predict pipeline uh, corrosion and reduce leakage and the possibility of explosions, things like that from natural gas pipelines. That is sort of undeniably good for the world from a resiliency perspective, and I would argue from a sustainability perspective. So I think you could define that as clean tech, uh, but it depends on how you want to you know, frame clean tech. The, the, you know, there are other examples where I think we could have a long debate, like natural gas generation. Um, you know, the most flexible natural gas generation today is a, a, as it operates today, what is enabling us to add more renewables to the grid because we just don't have enough energy storage and load flexibility and stuff like that yet. Um, and so in some places, you know, it's a, it's a necessary component of sort of today's mix as we add more and more wind and solar. So do you want to call that clean tech or not? I don't know. Um, but, you know, I've always considered myself to be like a sort of optimistic pragmatist on on climate. And so I think that it is important to recognize that over whatever time period we are going to make this massive energy transition, there is going to be some transition time. And so during that phase, be it 10 years, if you're some of the Democratic candidates for president, or be it. 30 years, uh, if you're, you know, forecasting on behalf of Shell or something like that, you know, whatever that period is, like, it's important to make sure that everything is is clean and sustainable and um, safe in the meantime. So I view that stuff as good for the world, whether or not you consider it to be clean tech. Yeah, it's an interesting question, because I suppose the oil companies are, you know, testing the limits of this by talking about sustainably fracked gas. And so I suppose they're testing what uh, both environmental groups and activist investors are willing to tolerate. Rebecca, you just wrote about this story. So I'm curious uh, if if they're using these technologies to try to clean up operations, recognize that methane leakage is a problem, and they're selling this to investors as a sort of clean tech environmental solution, are investors biting? It's really in the early stages. Uh, there are not that many companies investigating this. But I did a story recently about uh, how some both producers and utilities are trying to differentiate the gas that they either produce or, or sell to customers as being more responsibly produced. And so a lot of that has to do with the methane emissions. Uh, it can also kind of have to do with water that they're using to hydraulically fracture their 
Wells um, and other issues, the kind of definition of what responsibly produced uh, means is still a bit of a moving target. Um, but I kind of first learned about this actually when I was out with BP, which is one of the companies exploring this space. Um, I was out with them in June, I believe, in the Permian Basin, which is in West Texas and New Mexico. Um, and was just really fascinated because they're, you know, they're one of the companies that uh, is investing a lot in methane detection and leak prevention technologies. Um, and, you know, this is kind of another way to potentially monetize those investments. But, you know, we'll kind of have to see. There's some skepticism about consumer appetite for responsibly produce natural gas. I think this nascent trend is super interesting. I, I haven't been able to sort of convince myself in either direction whether it's going to take off or not. But the idea of, you know, decommoditizing gas so that when I receive gas, if I, I have natural gas in my house, if I received gas, like I'm interested to know whether that gas was quote unquote, sustainably produced, you know, and we can create standards to define that water usage, methane leak detection and prevention, et cetera. But, you know, I I think it's an interesting idea to take what is currently completely a commodity from the consumer perspective and um, decommoditize it. We did something similar. I'm sure I'll get some pushback for this analogy, but we did something similar with um, with electrons, you know, when we created renewable energy credits, like renewable energy credits are decommoditizing electricity because before a renewable energy credit, you know, a green quote unquote green electron was exactly the same as a quote unquote brown electron. And so what we said is, well, there's this, you know, sort of characteristic that a renewable energy produced electron, uh, has, which we want to be able to both recognize and ultimately monetize. And so we created sort of out of thin air, this whole new thing. That's a a credit based on the renewable energy component of it. I'm not sure that's exactly what we want to do with sustainably produced gas, but I think there is a corollary there, which is like, it's useful for consumers to have more knowledge about the source and production methods of, um, a particular bit of gas that they are getting. And perhaps that will create an incentive to produce more gas in that manner. I suppose it sends more of a signal to regulators and policymakers than it does to consumers. Because I can't imagine that there are enough consumers out there that really care about where their gas comes from. But if you're a large company and you're worried about more regulation more climate policy that, you know, could put restrictions on your industry to have a product and to have a system in place that makes you look better seems like the benefit of this system. And keep in mind that renewable energy credits weren't really about voluntary markets. They were all about tracking the mandates that utility utilities had for producing renewable electricity, and they needed some system to track that. So it feels like, to me, if this really takes off, it's less about consumer demand and more about maybe regulatory, responding to regulatory pressure so that they can prove, hey, we've got a product that is cleaner. To me, it seems like kind of more geared toward investors, actually, because you know, there's so little regulatory pressure on these companies around environmental issues in the U.S. at least right now. You know, we just saw the Trump administration uh, this week propose rolling back uh, a lot of the federal regulations around uh, methane emissions. And so it seems like actually, you know, the 
regulatory pressure is kind of falling away, uh, even as these companies, some of them, take steps to uh, increase their you know detection and prevention efforts. That's actually raises something I wanted to ask. The Obama administration implemented these methane regulations in what 2016, or they took effect in 2016, um, and then the the Trump administration just announced this week the intent to basically roll them back. But that announcement was met with skepticism, not just from the environmental community, but also from most of the big oil and gas companies who oppose it. So can you just kind of walk us through the politics here? It's sort of on the outside, doesn't seem obvious why companies like BP and Shell and Exxon would oppose the rollback of of these regulations. I think it comes down to the investors we've been talking about. A lot of the larger companies have uh, kind of under pressure from shareholders taken voluntary steps to reduce emissions and kind of see that as a way to differentiate themselves. And meanwhile, you have a lot of the smaller producers that produce a whole lot of the the oil and gas in the U.S. They're not household names. Um, And, you know, because they're not household names, don't face the kind of shareholder pressure all, all of the time that an Exxon or a Chevron or a BP or a Shell might. And so what you really saw is a, a split in the industry between the larger producers and the smaller ones. In that the larger producers are saying, I've already been getting pressure to do this, and so I have voluntarily already basically complied with these regulations, and I'm happy to keep complying with them, whereas the smaller producers, uh, absent the regulations, basically wouldn't have to comply. Is that the idea? Yeah, basically. So the larger producers are you know, the ones who bear the brunt of the public pressure over the environmental impacts of natural gas, whereas the smaller ones, there's less scrutiny. And so um, if these rollbacks kind of allow them to continue producing more economically, then great. On the economic point, I saw an estimate that the the savings that the oil and gas industry um, would obtain collectively from rolling back these methane regulations would be somewhere in the range of 17 to 19 million dollars a year, which seems like chump change, right? From the perspective of an oil and gas industry, 17 to 19 million dollars a year is like a literal drop in the bucket. So is it really like, you know, I guess the question is, do the small producers really take a hit from these regulations? It seems like economically, it's just not all that impactful. The Independent Petroleum Association of America, which is an association that represents a lot of these smaller producers, um, put out numbers that for smaller companies, and especially those uh, that are operating older, lower producing wells. So, you know, basically a lot of these wells produce a great deal of oil and gas early on, uh, but then the production trails off. Um, anyway, so the IPAA put out these these numbers that um, an average uh, low-producing natural gas well in Pennsylvania, which is where uh, a lot of the most prolific natural gas wells uh, are located, might only earn $9 a day 
once you take out expenses. But the the regulatory cost for that well could be as much as $10. I hear those numbers and I'm thinking about large producers and it feels like such a small number. But when you look at these much smaller independent oil and gas producers, it it really does have an impact. Barring, you know, the environmental necessity of like doing something about methane uh, emissions, this legitimately does have an impact for a lot of producers around the country, it sounds like. Right. And I think that it's important to keep in mind that a lot of the oil and natural gas that's produced in the U.S. comes from smaller producers. I don't have the natural gas statistic uh, on the top of my head, but if you look at the lower 48 states, about 30 percent of the oil produced in the U.S. comes from uh, small and private producers. And that's according to data from uh, RS Energy Group. And so there are a lot of small companies that, that this would impact as well. So I guess this pushes us into this bigger question about the financial health of the fracking industry. And if there are so many of these independent oil and gas producers and they're threatened by these regulations and then other financial pressures, how is the industry doing? And according to your analysis at the Wall Street Journal, they're not doing that well. Um, over the past decade, the independent producers, according to your reporting, spent roughly $200 billion more than they took in from their operations. Um, and that's because a lot of these companies uh, took on a lot of Wall Street debt. Uh, decline rates for many uh, wells were a lot higher than they assumed, and they just haven't been able to keep up their operations to service that debt. We saw a wave of bankruptcies in, I think, 2016, and now we're facing a wave of bankruptcies now. So can you unpack that financial health picture for us and why it's looking increasingly dire? I mean, environmental concerns aside, uh, a lot of these companies, as you mentioned, are struggling to produce returns for their shareholders, to generate profits. And we actually are seeing, as of August, um, the defaults on junk-rated energy debt at their highest level since 2017, which is when the industry was uh, coming out of a multi-year downturn in oil prices. And that has been paired with uh, quite a number of bankruptcies. The the total number of bankruptcies um, in the U.S. through August um, has nearly matched the the level of bankruptcies um, in oil and gas in all of last year. And you know this is as oil prices have been relatively healthy. Um, and so what you're seeing is a lot of companies, as you mentioned, struggling with uh, debt burdens that they took on, many of them kind of as they were coming out of the oil price crash that I mentioned, and also investors becoming really frustrated with the poor returns from many of these companies and backing away from oil and gas. So so what I'm hearing you saying based on your reporting, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there is a financial impact to these methane regulations. It's concerning a lot of producers. It's why many of the smaller ones have you know, lobbied the government, lobbied the Trump administration to roll back these regulations. But 
there's this much bigger financial picture that has almost nothing to do with the Obama-era regulations. And it's because they took on unsustainable levels of debt. Uh, Production wasn't what it seemed. um, And many producers have fallen short of Wall Street expectations. How do we balance those two things? What we hear from Washington right now from the Trump administration is that these regulations are job killing. They're hurting producers. Pretty standard stuff about the economic impact of regulations. But when these producers were operating without stricter regulations, it was it was then that they took on a lot of this debt, which caused the problems that we're seeing now. So so help us understand the balance of those two things. I would kind of characterize a lot of these issues around uh, environmental externalities as additional headwinds. So let's say, you know, an investor is uh, fed up with poor returns, you know, the methane emissions and uh, CO2 emissions from oil and gas might be, you know, an additional deterrent, but all of that aside, the companies, um, particularly the smaller ones, have been under a great deal of financial strain. So then what comes next in this this political story when it comes to methane regulations? Um, are we going to see this rollback? And if so, what's the environmental impact? Where do things stand today? Well, there's a 60-day public comment period on the regulations uh, or the proposed regulations. And then, you know, we may see quite a number of lawsuits. Um, My colleague reported that the Trump administration is is hoping to implement them uh, sometime next year. So, you know, I think that's really an open question um, in terms of when we would see this, you know, hitting producers. So where does this story go next? Where does this story take you? What is? What are you pursuing? What is most interesting? And what should we be looking out for? As I mentioned, I'm, you know, really fascinated with uh, kind of where the money is flowing around these issues because I, as we've talked about, so much of the action... Uh, from the company's side is in response to investors. So, you know, to what extent are uh, public and private investors uh, redirecting where they put their money um, because of both the financial performance and also these environmental issues? And so, you know, I'm interested in, in tracking that and, you know, seeing how the industry responds. Well, Rebecca Elliott, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal, thank you for coming on, helping us explain this issue. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Shale, um, after this conversation, are you are you now thinking that, you know, at, at some of your meetings with limited partners, you're going to be talking about sustainably fracked gas? I have no idea, um, but I am interested in the topic. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll bring it up. Maybe maybe uh, drones and other pipeline inspection technologies are, are, are going to be an increasing piece of the landscape for you guys. I mean, look, you know, the, the revolution that satellites, drones and sensors put together are providing in terms of being able to monitor and inspect, you know, this applies to pipelines and um, 
wells, but it also applies to transmission distribution lines and transformers and like all this stuff. It's actually really exciting. And we'll, we'll talk more about it, I think, on a future episode. But I think that like this ability to, I don't know, remap the world, um, but this time do it dynamically and in three dimensions and with all these extra features. I think this is this is one of the most important things to happen in to physical infrastructure that we've seen in a century. Absolutely. Much bigger conversation beyond just gas itself. And I definitely want to have that conversation. In the meantime, what do you think about this conversation? If you want to provide feedback, hit us up on Twitter. Shale, Khan, and I are there. We've got the Interchange show there. We want to hear from you what you think about this movement within the natural gas industry to clean up its operations and what happens if uh, the regulatory pressure stays off. If you want to send us an email, send us a note at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And we will catch you next week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.